you are going to love my friend Alan Reed. Alan has a dairy farm in Iowa that delivers milk door to door. You heard that right. He delivers milk door to door. At the end of every year, Alan sends out an email asking people to buy milk coupons. The problem is his sales have been decreasing year after year after year. He recently went through a story brand workshop and everything changed. You will not believe the before and after. You are going to love my friend Alan Reed's story. I mean, I was really concerned. I mean, we have to have customers to stay in business. And so it was one of those things that keeps me up at night because our marketing was not as successful as it had been. I found out about StoryBrand because Don did a podcast with Ray Edwards. And so I listened to that podcast and before the podcast was over, I had the online story brand subscription ordered. And the first thing we had coming up was, was a major promotion we do every year where we sell these little ticket books that have, they're worth 20 gallons of milk. Typically I had sold at the most $3,000 worth of those ticket books on the day we put them on sale. We do it for one day. So I took the story brand that I'd learned through the online service and I'd, I went through the book and I went through the process and I come up with an email and a, and a flyer that was going out to our customers. So instead of selling maybe $3,000 worth of coupon books that day, we sold just short of $52,000 worth of coupon books that day. I mean, it, it really turned into a problem because we didn't have that many books ready. And so I had all of my kids, neighbors, anybody I could round up sitting around my kitchen table putting these coupon books together because we were running out of them hour by hour. Man, it was great. We loved it. <laughs> by using the story brand technique and the emails that I sent out to those customers, we've been able to increase our extra product sales by about 12.5% just in the last few months. And, and that's a lot. That, that's a lot of money. Before, when I go to write copy before StoryBrand, I really didn't have a good process to work through. I just put words down that I thought was going to make a difference. And I just, it was a little bit like rolling the dice and hoping that I'd connect with the customer. It's nice to have a successful way to do things other than just hoping that it works. At StoryBrand, we know that stories like Alan's are common. We see transformations like this happen every day, and we know that you can see the same impact in your business. Go to storybrand.com today and register for a workshop. And thanks so much for your story, Alan. Congratulations on your success. Welcome to the Building a StoryBrand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., you are a smart guy. Well, thank you. You are about to defend your dissertation. Can I just do something again? Uh And my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson... Dr. JJ. Yes, I should be a doctor at that point. You know I'm going to start saying that. When you don't have to. Oh, no, I think I'm going to. <laughs> Believe me, anything to give this podcast uh, some I'm, kind of credibility. I'm, and we gotta... <laughs> I'm starting to sweat already. <laughs> I'm absolutely. I'm calling you Doc from here on out. You're a smart guy. As long as I passed. At that <laughs> yeah, if you did pass, that's yeah, going to be a little bit yeah, embarrassing. Little bit, we'll do an editorial footnote at the end of the podcast. Uh, by the earlier, way, we referred to JJ as doctor. Dr. JJ Peterson. Yeah. He is not a doctor, but he does have two masters, which is a little <laughs> yeah. condolence prize. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
eight years of work. Anyway, you've done a lot of thinking. You've done a uh-huh. lot of reading. You've uh-huh. done, I'd imagine you've read Kierkegaard. You've uh-huh. read uh, Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Did you ever go through a phase where you basically became a nihilist? No. Honestly, I did not. Never. Yeah. You never, never came to the end of your studies yeah. and said, oh my word, this whole thing is Doesn't meaningless. Matter. No. I never, ever did. You know, if you sit and think for not very long, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. especially after yeah. you watch the news, yeah. you can kind of just go... This is hopeless. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. So I don't know if we want to call it nihilism <laughs> or hopelessness or whatever. Yeah. And I've had those moments yeah. where you're just up against something and you're just going, wow. It's amazing to me when somebody actually looks at the facts of reality, understands there is a brutal nature mm-hmm. to our reality, a brutal nature to it, and says, I see it. I'm not naive but I'm going to pick up a flashlight and shine some light into this darkness. Because what's not inspirational to me is, well, the world is actually really a lovely place. Yeah. You know, of course it's a lovely place. There are lovely things that happen in the world. Yeah. But I just don't want to know about hard things. That's an optimism that's based on naivete. I used to work for a nonprofit that did community development in Africa. And I would spend oftentimes months in the slums. So it's the largest slum like in Ethiopia and the largest slum in Kenya where there's a million people within a one square mile. Mm. And of course it's dark and there's heavy, heavy, heavy things going on. But there are moments that you can step in and not only bring light to that situation by offering hope through programs that bring education and small business loans and health training. Yeah, there's an army who's doing some wonderful things. they are. They're doing amazing things. And I found some of my greatest moments of hope in some of those darkest places. And that is what I wanted to ultimately bring that to the world and say like, hey, it's not that we just ignore this, but in light of it, not in spite of all the bad things going on, but even in light of the bad things, we can still step into hopeful moments and shine light in dark places. And people who like live in that, that's what's inspiring to me. It's inspiring to me too. And today's interview is with somebody who may be one of the most inspiring people I've ever gotten to know. Mm. It's Shannon Sedgwick Davis. This week, she releases a book called To Stop a Warlord. Mm. Shannon is a Baylor Law grad. She went on to work at International Justice Mission. She's pretty brilliant, and she was one of the founding board members at Tom's Shoes. Oh, wow. Helped scale it up, sold half of it to Bain Capital. She started a hedge fund Uh and made millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, 50%. Now, imagine... International Justice Mission to running a hedge fund. Yeah, that yeah. is a, yeah. I mean, just put that in your head. Yeah. That is a spectrum of experiences. Sure. <laughs> then she took half yeah. the money, the profit from the hedge fund. Now, I have some hedge fund friends. We yeah. fly around in their private jets. <laughs> yeah. They're, you know, they make a lot of money. And <laughs> yes. by the way, they have an 11% tax bracket. We can get into that some other time because <laughs> yeah. it's wrong. Uh-huh. But she runs a hedge fund and half of the profits from the hedge fund went to basically a military effort and she's going to get into it, in coordination with the government of Uganda, the United States government, and a South African group, to bring down a warlord. Wow. She's unbelievable. Yeah. There's already movie talks about her. She's going to be on 60 Minutes here pretty soon. She's on the Today Show. Here's what I love about it. She gets into this in the What I love about it is she sees the world for what it is, mm-hmm. but it doesn't take her down. Yeah. She doesn't go, this is hopeless. Yeah. She actually says, we can do something. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because sometimes you feel like the world is this house burning down, and yeah. you're like, you know what? House is going to burn down. Grab a broom. Yeah. 
And while it's burning down, we're just going to sweep the kitchen because for a minute it can be look clean. Yeah. <laughs> You're just kind of going, okay, that's not a, a helpful perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just going, no, we can actually stop it from burning down. And, yeah. and the other thing, yeah, because her experience at Tom's Shoes, she actually believes that corporations and business can be as powerful a force to stand up and take down something that's awful. Yeah, as any nonprofit, as any religious community. And I am 100% yeah. in agreement with that. Yep. That if you really want to change the world, watch the way money flows and get to the people with the money, not because you know they're better than anybody else, but because money buys all sorts of wonderful things. Yep. And if you change their hearts, you channel corporations where they're doing one great things in the world, that's the quickest way to change the world. And she's yeah. a, somebody who believes that too. Yeah. You know, this is one of those ones, JJ, one of those interviews was like, this is an honor. Yeah. For you real. Know, where you for get real. into it and you're like, I can't believe I'm talking to this person. Yeah. Her name again is Shannon Sedgwick Davis. You heard about her here maybe first, but it won't be the last time you hear about her. <laughs> she's uh, <laughs> I told her I want Julia Roberts to play her in the movie. And <laughs> she'll share. There's already somebody who's interested <laughs> and uh, she'll share that in the interview. But, you know, if you ever just thought the world's a dark place, there's really nothing I can do and it makes me sad. It's called nihilism, <laughs> and uh, it doesn't have to be that way. It can be different, and Shannon explains to us not only why, but how. Shannon, thanks for joining us. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here, too. We're going to get to your book, The Stop a Warlord, in a minute, because I think people are going to be fascinated by what you've done with your life. But you've always been somebody who is incredibly passionate about, you know, all your days all the way back at International Justice Mission, you've been incredibly passionate about making the world a better place and stopping bad people from doing bad things. Now, there's a lot of people like that. But what's interesting about you is you brought it into the business community. And we have forty to 50,000 business leaders who have a lot of millennial employees, and they have, you know, issues that they care about themselves. But, you know, maybe they thought that those things need to be separated. So I run my business, and then I give money to a charity, and those things are separated. Is it wise, and I think I know your answer, to actually mix the two? Yeah, for sure. You know, I've had this extraordinary opportunity in my life to be a part of companies that do good and also are making a living while doing good. And in my experience, we're all in this big mess of humanity together. Mm -hmm. And for us to try to compartmentalize or separate, if you will, our aspirations for humanity from the business angles, that just doesn't make sense for me. I was fortunate enough to be on the inaugural board of Tom's Shoes and was with that company until we sold it. And Blake and his brilliance just pioneered an opportunity to really show the world what that looks like at a consumer level, that you can actually engage your consumer community in things that we're all deeply passionate about, which are about the bigger visions for humanity. What happens to a business when somebody sits down, the leadership sits down and says, hey, this is what's going on in the world. We think it's wrong. We have an angle on this because we do X to actually try to tackle it. What happens to a team? What happens to the bottom line? What are the positive effects of that? Yeah, you know, it's so many positive effects, but I should say that it ends up that you're really not working but you're doing life together when you decide to engage mm. that big picture as you move forward. And we saw that at Tom's, right? We saw people who actually raised money to come and work for us and intern for us and hit the streets for us. 
when people would show up to work, it wasn't work. I mean, we were all pushing humanity forward in different parts of the world through our bottom line and through being able to teach our consumers what we knew about certain problems in the world, but also to let our consumers teach us, which that's a really important thing that I think a lot of times we miss in business is how are we really listening and how do we listen deeply to that community? And I think when you give them opportunities to be involved at a deeper level in your business, you invite them to come on that journey with you. We had so many of our customers that would show up and promote our shoe company because it actually equaled a double bottom line for them. They got a nice pair of shoes, but then they also got to really help someone else out that was a little further from their home, if you will, or sometimes in their backyards. And when we invite people on those journeys, you get an extraordinary amount of feedback that really just helps you understand your customer base better. How would somebody who runs a company or owns a company decide on an issue that they want to champion? You wouldn't just say, hey, champion an issue because it's good for your bottom line. You know, the, the way I always do this, I say, what ticks you off? Just tell me what ticks you off. What makes you angry? Because on the reverse side of your anger, somebody has stepped on one of your values. That's how I would start it. But how would you actually counsel somebody to say you should champion this? So I say it a little different than you, but it's exactly in this same envelope, right? I say, what makes your heart beat fast? Hmm. And the idea that we would show up and, and most people who run businesses or have a professional life are working 50, 60 hours a week. And the idea of sort of taking away that piece of you that makes your heart beat fast for those 50, 60 hours a week and then coming home and trying to get fired up about it just creates this incongruence in our lives. And so that's always my question is what makes your heart beat fast? And often for me, I mean, issues of injustice do. So that also very much ticks me off in terms of your terminology. (laughs) What a gift that in spending my life, and we spend the majority of our lives working, that in spending our life, we get to just really incorporate values that are deep and real to us. And you see that across the board, right, too. So it's not always issues of injustice tick me off or make my heart beat fast. And so I'm going to go and address those issues with my life's work. But it also creates this ability to do that inward with our teams as well. I think it really helps you recognize each other's humanities. It helps you listen deeper to those who work with you, your employees, your partners. And it really almost creates, if you will, some sort of a servant leader culture, which I believe really helps companies thrive because those that are part of the mission fill a unique part of the team. And the hierarchy dissolves to a certain extent because you're all pointed at the same North Star. And that's just been, I know that I'm incredibly fortunate that I've been able to do that with my life. Yeah, and Simon Sinek would call it, you know, finding your why or something like that. I experienced this myself because I spent years writing memoirs that had what people thought were tangible results, right? You know, they'd read a book, they'd have a better spiritual life or something like that. But I noticed when I started StoryBrand five years ago, I was much more fulfilled because you could actually measure the difference. Like, I could measure your revenue. Your revenue has increased, and I was part of that, so I feel impactful. Where if you came and you said, I love Blue Like Jazz, and maybe feel less alone in college, I'm like, I can't measure that. <laughs> you know, right. I don't know what the ROI is on that. But then, in my experience with StoryBrand, I kept thinking, man, I really feel like I'm in the sweet spot, maybe, of my entire life, building this company that helps people do marketing. The why is a little bit intangible. And then we started creating more and more jobs at my own company, and then we would help other companies scale up by clarifying their message, and they would create jobs. And then when I did a deep dive with Joe Ritchie into sort of the economic machine that exists in our country and really around the world, and realized if we grow the middle class 
and create jobs, there will be less people in poverty. We look at poverty, we tend to just look at poverty, but if you actually turn around and say, no, let's look at the middle class, make it bigger and create more room so that more people in poverty can get into the middle class and have opportunities to do that, especially those who are victims of systemic racism, gender inequality, those kinds of things. That actually lit a fire under me like I'd never experienced before. And then I actually said it to a wide audience I said, listen, I'm not in this to help you clarify. I'm in this to build the middle class because if we help you grow your company, you're going to hire people. And everybody in the middle class has one thing in common. Their children get to eat dinner tonight. It became the sort of why of my organization. So, you know, what you're talking about is not just about doing something good for the world. It's also healing for those of us who actually embrace whatever our passion is and associate it, incorporate it into our business dealings. I think it's a good thing. That's extraordinary. You're exactly right. It's been a huge gift to watch people walk into that purpose. And I actually think that the younger workforce of today is craving that. And so we have to be responsive to that. Okay, I want to switch gears because this is the real conversation that I'm dying to have here. I want to talk about just going after something huge. I mean, unreasonably huge. We have a saying at StoryBrand for our staff, it's be sure to swim out past the breakers, meaning... We want you in places where you're slightly uncomfortable because that's really where you grow. There's swimming out past the breakers and then there's crossing the ocean. You've actually spent the last several years trying to do something absolutely amazing. And you are releasing a book called To Stop a Warlord in which you talk about your story of going after Joseph Kony, who is a Ugandan warlord who has recruited child armies and committed incredible atrocities in that region of Africa. We got to buy the book. The book is called To Stop a Warlord, right? It's the whole story. And if you're up for a page turner about somebody trying to do something impossible, especially a woman in Texas who puts together an army to go after a bad guy. I mean, that's just a great story. I hope this becomes a movie, Shannon. But will you tell me how in the world this happened? How did you get involved? How did you hear about Joseph Coney? How did you get Black Hawk helicopters on your side? How did it all happen? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I think a lot of people believe that I went sort of zero to army in 60 (laughs) seconds. And that's, of course, not at all what happened. What's interesting is that when you get invited into situations of injustice, there are drawbacks too, right? And one of those drawbacks there's so many positives. But one of those drawbacks is you become intimately aware of the suffering and Mm. what people are facing day to day and the struggles that they're facing and the struggles that often are so unlike struggles that you might face at home, right? Like one of my biggest struggles is how do I make it to the grocery store before I have to hit carpool line and still return the 15 calls that I have to return? Uh, that have come in in the last two hours. And literally over in Central and East Africa, you have mothers that are hiding their children under banana leaves at night to try to keep their children from being kidnapped and taken away from them and then forced into an army where they're forced to do horrific and terrible things. You know, initially we started with a very traditional philanthropic model that we were applying to the region. We were funding research on this particular issue. We were building schools and then uh, the bad guy would come and burn down the schools and then we'd build another school. And it just continued to feel over the months and years that we were engaged, that we were essentially putting a Band-Aid over a bullet hole and it wasn't working, Don. And the idea that 
you could sit with a philanthropic intervention that wasn't working after you knew the people who were being affected and after they had become your friends and after you had met their children and realized their children are just like your children, right? They may not look like your children and they may not have the same creature comforts that your children have. But at the end of the day, kids are kids, right? Yeah. They're running around crazy. They're kicking, you know, the equivalent of a soccer ball for them. And it's pretty hard to sort of come home to the safety that we have here and sit with the fact that I know that all my fellow mothers over in that region every night are trying to hide their kids from being kidnapped. And it forces your hand a bit more. It forces you to ask some of these uncomfortable questions, as you suggest. How do we help change that reality for them? I like to bring up, you know, if this was going on across the street from us, right? If we knew that someone was running a brothel across the street from us, or if we knew that someone was kidnapping children across the street from us, there's not any one of us here that wouldn't respond to that and wouldn't do what we could do. And when you start to spend time in a region, even if it's far away, it does become across the street for you. And it forces you to ask bigger questions of how you might be able to affect change. And then you test them. And then you still just dip your, or for us at least, we still just dipped our toe into what I would consider some out-of-the-box interventions. And ultimately, we got there. So how did you do that? I would imagine you found out a little bit about the region, what was going on there in your days at International Justice Mission. Is that right? That's right. That was my first introduction to the region. Absolutely. And the sort of things that you've done more recently and what's in the book to stop a warlord, that's post-IJM because they're not in the business of you know raising up military units. You know, because the story, as I hear it, sounds like Blackwater, right? It just sounds like, let's get an army together and go after this guy. Am I accurate in that, or is that not exactly what it was? Was it more people who were on the ground trying to find them, and you were able to get them some money and resources? Or how did it happen that you were actually a principal figure in creating a military initiative to take down a very, very bad person on the other side of the world? I definitely wouldn't liken it to Blackwater, right? Because Blackwater is a company that actually makes money off of doing this, right? right? It's for profit. It makes money. This initiative cost us just south of $13 million. So we spent money uh, to try to make it. And who's we? Will you tell us who we is? We is the Bridgeway Foundation. So I'm CEO of the Bridgeway Foundation. We have a money management and mutual funds company called Bridgeway Capital Management. And we give away half of our profits. With this, <laughs> that alone, <laughs> that alone is revolutionary. I mean, I've never heard of a hedge fund manager saying we give half of it away. Even though I'm sure there's some wonderful hedge fund managers, I've been on their private jets, but I've never heard of that. So, so you're actually taking half the money that the hedge fund is making. And can I just ask, are you buying actual guns? Are you funding people who are already on the ground doing that sort of thing? How did you choose to flow the money? Yeah, no, definitely not. You know, we drew some really hard lines on things like buying weapons. But what we did was we had this broad mission, right? And it it was basically to stop genocide and mass atrocity on the globe. Mm. And that's a pretty audacious mission, even for a company that's already doing audacious things in terms of giving half their profits. And so we were funding in a number of countries and funding multiple grants. And I just woke up one day and I thought, we're not stopping genocide or mass atrocity. And so we either need to change our mission statement or we need to do what we're saying we're doing. And that was a real soul moment for us. And we decided to try to stop genocide and mass atrocity. And so I sort of surveyed the landscape of the areas that we were funding and the conflicts that we were funding in. And 
I thought the LRA was low-hanging fruit a decade later. I don't know if I could ever call it that again. But I thought, gosh, this is going to be our best chance to try to prove this model that as a private entity, we could have this disproportionate impact for humanity. And so as we stood back and looked at it, we looked at the things that were broken, the pieces that just weren't working. And again, you know, it starts with listening. It starts with being on the ground. Listening is just crucial to our model. And what continued to come up as we'd listen is that there were two big gaps in the effort to stop Joseph Coney, who, by the way, is the first ever indictee of the International Criminal Court. And several of his commanders were also indicted at that time. Hmm. And we realized there were these two gaps. First, there was a lack of a well-trained force to pursue them. And second, there was this ineffective way for communities in the LRA-affected areas to warn each other of impending attacks. It operates like a terrorist cell in, in many ways. It does, right? There's no cell service out there. It's preying on the poorest of the poor, the bottom of the development food chain. And, you know, as a lawyer, I look at these two gaps and I'm like, okay, let's take on communications because <laughs> that's way less scary than a well-trained force to pursue right. them. And so in doing so, we found some incredible leaders. In 2010, we met up with a man named Father Abbe Benoit with the Catholic Church. And he was already starting to try to do this. Because what you'll also find when you engage these issues that are far from us and across the globe from us is that the majority of the time, the local leadership and the people on the ground actually know what it's going to take to make a difference. They usually just lack a few resources here or there. And in the case of Abbe Benoit and his radio network, he lacked an ability to scale that. And mm. so we were able to go and help scale that. And now we have hundreds of radio towers that exist in these places that don't have cell phone towers so that when there's an LRA attack or a different type of an attack, they can actually send warnings to each other. So if there's an attack in one place and then say that the LRA is moving another 20 kilometers to the next small town to attack them. Well, now you have a mechanism by which for the first town that has been attacked or is about to be attacked to send off a warning message to those around them. And that was huge for us. That was around 2010? That was around 2010. Yeah. But anytime you go deeper, as I just said, you dip right. your toe and you go deeper, you find that the floor is just much lower than you think it is, right? So then when we get this information, these anti-LRA radio towers were providing us with this vast amount of intelligence, and they were showing us trends and how the LRA was moving. So then the question, the natural question that sort of comes from that is, gosh, if we know where they are, if we know how they are acting, like, is there actually something we can do to stop them? instead right. of just warning when they're on the way somewhere. And that was going to require some pretty significant training. And that's when we decided to look into that. We talked to our friends at the U.S. State Department. We talked to Human Rights Watch, who we had been a longtime partner with, and really began to ask questions about that particular gap, the gap in training for the force that was pursuing the LRA. So it was the Ugandan army. Yeah, I was about to say, because I remember being in Uganda, meeting with an army commander who was talking about this issue, and it may have been a political statement that he was making just to us, but he felt very passionate, and this would have been ooh, 2013 or 14, is that about right? Yes, right in the thick of our work, sure. So you were actually 
one of the principles in helping them get organized and get the resources that they need? Yeah. And they, I mean, to be very clear, I mean, the Ugandan army is called the UPDF and they were a fiercely proud establishment. And at that point they'd been fighting the LRA for 23 years. Mm. So, I mean, it was not a scenario in which, you know, any of us were coming in with better ideas or more solutions, but they really needed training because they were willing to put a significant amount of time into the continent and with humility pursue the LRA. But they were missing some pretty key things, right? The LRA had done a really good job strategically of breaking into these small bandit groups. And and in part, that was becoming very difficult because a a traditional army would go after another army, if you will. But there were many, many, many armies. And the LRA was really exploiting the region in that way. They were, you know, it's an asymmetrical conflict. And so in terms of us thinking about how to help them, we realized that they needed to be trained on HF radios. They couldn't use satellite communications gear. They needed ready-to-use maps instead of GPS. And they were going to need some logistics in terms of making that happen. But the key to knowing which ideas, tactics, and techniques would be of most value was going to require us going and finding someone a lot smarter than us. And so we started to look around, and we ultimately chose STEP International, which was the group that we chose to underwrite training for the Ugandan People's Defense Force. They provided the training or they... They did. That's right. We funded the training. Is this an international effort or is it British or is it American or who is... It was South Africans, right? And really liked that because the South Africans in particular, this was their continent. They always talked about Africa had to be part of Africa's solutions and they just felt like the right group and they'd had experience in asymmetrical conflicts on the continent before. So they were the absolute right public-private partnership for us. The UPDF took a big risk, right, joining us in this initiative as well, because this is a very non-traditional intervention that we did. We provided tactical support to that particular army. We worked with them on disarmament and demobilization, so what we call DDR programs and reintegration programs. This is where you would find the children and you would have them give up their guns and you'd help them get back into society? Yeah, that's my favorite part of what we got to do. That was just an incredible piece of what we were able to do. Joseph Coney started kidnapping these kids at night in towns, or he would go into schools and just get a large part of his army. And some of these kids were as young as nine, 13 years old. And here now, 20 years later, they're 33 years old and they're fighting for this man. And all they've known is war. I mean, all they've known is war, right? Trauma issues. Oh, so significant. Yeah. And they assume, I mean, Coney would lie to them, right? And say that all their family was dead and that he was their family now. And we really took a playbook out of what Columbia had done with the FARC and really looked at how they were able to draw some people out of conflict. And this worked really well in our case. And so we would actually go into communities. Let's say that, um, you know, this is a boy that was kidnapped at 13 and, you know, is now 23, 33 perhaps, and running one of these cells for the LRA. And we would know approximately the region he was in, obviously under triple canopy jungle, the terrain out there was crazy. But we would go find a living relative, sometimes still a mom, sometimes a sister, 
and we would record messages directly from them on our iPhones. And then we were able to affix onto the helicopters we provided these serious speakers, think rock concert on steroids. And we would plug in our iPhones and we would hover over the region that we would believe them to be hiding. And we would play voices that they would recognize their mom's voice or their sister's voice, asking them to put down their arms and walk out. And then Uganda did such a great job because they gave amnesty to anyone who voluntarily walked out other than the ICC and ITs. And so we would give instructions on how to come out. And in our time there, over 800 came out. Wow. That is unbelievable. And the logistics of it are monumental. To be able to think of that strategy, get on the ground, get those recordings, get in a helicopter, find out where they are and play that is a serious amount of devotion that goes beyond. It's just phenomenal. Shannon, I'm, I'm kind of speechless. Oh, well, it just was a tremendous gift. You know, the year before we entered the mission, there were 776 killed and about 600 civilians abducted. And then the year that we withdrew, the LRA had killed 12 and abducted 39. So they didn't want to be there. They were crippled. They were absolutely crippled. Yeah, and they didn't want to be there. And so what was working to their advantage in terms of all these little asymmetrical groups actually ended up being their biggest strategic disadvantage, right? Because we were able to exploit that ultimately by taking a playbook from some countries that had done a better job of this historically. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Shannon Sedgwick Davis in just a moment. We have a workshop coming up in Nashville, Tennessee. It's the StoryBrand Marketing Workshop. And what we do is we help you clarify your message. We'll actually teach you the StoryBrand framework. If you bought the book and read it and have been introduced to the framework and want to know if you're doing it right, you need to come to a StoryBrand Marketing Workshop because you can not only know that you're doing it right, you can actually get it done. That is your clear message finished during the 48 hours that you are at the workshop. And then, of course, you use that messaging in all of your marketing and all of the ways that you talk about your brand so that customers actually start to respond. My friend Amy Lacey at Cauliflower Foods was actually approached by a marketing agency that said, if you give us $25,000 a month, we'll scale up your business. We'll do all your marketing for you. She's very tempted by that, but she said, you know, I heard about this thing called StoryBrand. I'm going to go there first. And she clarified her message. And because she clarified her message, she realized, you know what? I don't need a marketing company to help me do this. I can actually do it myself. I believe the message is powerful enough. When she came to us the year before, she had lost a quarter million dollars at Cauliflower Foods. They make cauliflower pizza crust. After StoryBrand, it was $6 million. And then the next year, $20 million. I'm telling you, A clear message goes a lot further than a muddled message. Maybe the problem with your business is not with your products or services or your people. It may just be the way you're talking about your business. You want to use the kinds of words people actually respond to. You can clarify your message. Register at storybrand.com. That's storybrand.com. Register today, and we will see you in April. Well, your book is called To Stop a Warlord. I want to read a quote because it's a fascinating quote. It's from page 310. You say this, I always thought that the goodness in the world would awaken me to my highest spiritual self. But it's evil that has taught me the most, that has brought me to advocate for innocence so fiercely. That is a fascinating quote. And I've heard, you know, Jason Russell's a friend and 
heard stories about Joseph Coney and legends about him and the degree of evil that surrounds this man and is inside this man. Can you walk us through how those encounters with this dark reality have helped you find your highest spiritual self? Yeah, it's so interesting. I was raised in an evangelical family. My mom was youth pastor of our Methodist church growing up. And to say I had rosy colored glasses would be a drastic understatement. I always say that everyone's light is their dark. And our friend, I think you know him too, Don, John Foreman sings a song of Switchfoot called The Shadow Proves the Sunshine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he says exactly what I'm saying there in that paragraph with that line. If there wasn't evil, there wouldn't be good, right? And so in understanding the depth and depravity of evil, it was able to really allow me to understand the goodness of God and the tremendous nature of humanity at its best. Mind you, it's different. My faith is such a deeper and more profound faith than it was, but it's also one of a lot more suffering than it ever had been. Mm. I suffer at such a deeper level because I've become so more intimately familiar with evil in the world. This isn't a spiritual podcast, but we're both spiritual people. Do you feel a kinship with Christ in that suffering? I do, but you know, that took a little while. I'll be honest with you. There was a real season of darkness for me in that. I felt real abandoned by the faith that I was raised in. It didn't speak often when I was raised to the suffering and to the evil. And so then when I really started to get my arms around the vast suffering and evil in the world, I had a lot of questions for Christ, right? Like I had a lot of questions and wrestling and went through a pretty dark season in terms of how is this possible and why is this allowed to happen? Did that come from just the bigness of the world's issues and this seeming inability that any of us have to solve those problems? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And this idea that we're supposed to be a part of that, right? Because if we're not supposed to be a part of that, then it's all okay. Then we just go on with our lives. But this idea that we're actually supposed to play a role in making that better, it created a real season of darkness that, by the way, is still present. But I was really lucky to have some people around me that just helped pull me out of that a bit and remind me of the good. And honestly, so many of those people were the people that we had the honor of working with on the ground there. I think it's the great narrative period that we're all in is this fight to look reality squarely in the eye and acknowledge the absolutely brutal nature of it. And that's where Nietzsche stops, right? He stops there. And I cannot believe how inspired I am by people like you, by people like John Foreman, who you mentioned, by people like Blake McCoskey, who you referenced earlier, by people like Jeremy Cowart, by people like Bob Goff. I mean, just this list of friends, John Richmond at the State Department and human trafficking, Gary Haugen at an international justice mission, who are not Mary Poppins. They're not, it's not that they don't see the absolute brutal nature of our reality. It's that they push right through it. You know, I can't imagine, you would not command respect if you didn't admit there are days that are very dark. We would think, okay, well, that just means you're delusional. But the fact that there are days that are dark and you get up and you spend half your hedge funds profits on very complicated issues, doing extremely difficult logistic work to save one kid inspires me to get up tomorrow morning and do my mission. And I hope everybody listening can find a mission and do the same thing. We just have to fight this nihilistic perspective on life that will just make everything worse and worse and worse. 
I'm grateful for you. I'm so grateful for you, too. The book is called To Stop a Warlord. Shannon, this book comes out on April 2nd. It does. Yes, right around the corner. Go on Amazon today and buy it. And then we're going to keep an eye on, there's an episode of 60 Minutes coming up. You're going to be on the Today Show coming up. This is uh, not a national hero. This is a global hero that we're talking to today. An honor to spend time with you. Okay, I have to ask one shallow question at the end. When they make a movie about your life, who plays you? <laughs> oh my I have gosh. an idea. I have oh an idea, gosh, but I want to hear. No, it's so scary, right? I, I can't even imagine a film. I, I, it was so hard to get. This story was almost too sacred for paper, and it was so hard to get it written, but I knew I had to. We had to honor those incredible heroes that very few people get a chance to meet like I did, and I had a responsibility to honor them. There's been a couple of conversations with some big movie folks. Not surprising. The idea of that scares me to death. Um, <laughs> well, my vote is Julia Roberts with a blonde wig. Oh, well, I have a good friend that I actually, <laughs> she got to go overseas with me and see this region, Kristen Bell. Um, oh, yes. So she's she already laid it. She's laid it in the sand. She says it's her. So she says it's her. Okay. okay. But she said she was going to give me an eye patch. And so I'm not sure that I'm going to be agreeable <laughs> if she chooses to give me an eye patch. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Oh, Shannon, you're an inspiration. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us. Thanks, Don. So grateful for you. JJ, I hope that gets turned into a movie. For real. We all need to read the book. Yeah. Grab the book and support what Shannon is doing. And, you know, it's inspirational. But I do hope millions and millions of people find out yeah. about what she's done. I, gosh, I just get choked up even thinking about the interview. <laughs> I know. It's kind of amazing. It, it and is that's, amazing. that's the kind of thing we need in this world. I mean, really, like, lots there's of, so much lots thing about the house that's burning down. And there's so much light, even in the midst of darkness, that not only can we shine a flashlight on and show people, but also that we can create ourselves. Yeah. Everybody needs to wake up in the morning and say, don't let the bad guys win. Yeah. <laughs> don't yeah, let for the bad real. guys win. Yep. Because we can't, nobody's going to do it alone. The good guys far outnumber the bad guys. Oh, man, they absolutely do. Well, what a beautiful episode. Yeah. I can't believe we get to do this for a living. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest EP, Dive Deep, Hushed on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to beat nihilism. <laughs>